When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Golikin Smetty here. Mike, I don't I don't care what anyone says. Pumpkin season starts at the end of August. Welcome to the 400th edition of Golikin Smetty. I am Mike Golik Sr. She's Jess Matana. Of course, it's not our 400th episode. Someday. Does it already feel like that? That it makes does. me sad. Oh, it, it, you're, it, it, you're getting sick of me already. No, God, no. I, listen, I have, just so you know, um, coming into the one of the weekends of a Notre Dame game, I know you and your boyfriend are going to be staying at our house. Mm-hmm. Stu Gotts is coming in for that game as well. And you should know I have chosen you and your boyfriend over him. He is not staying at the house, and you are. <laughs> I mean, I would hope so. Yeah. Thank you. First of all, thank you for the hospitality. We do appreciate it. Second of all, you know, Stu Gatz is just going to say, I'm going to show up and then not show up. And then no one's staying at your house, which honestly is exactly right. prefer. But, you know, it's Stu Gatz. He'll end up stealing something. I know he will be there because the Friday before the Clemson game, his daughter, who plays lacrosse at Northwestern, they're traveling to Notre Dame to play Notre Dame women's lacrosse. So, he will be here for that game. I know he'll do that for his daughter. Now, whether he stays Saturday for the game, I put it at 90-10, no shot. <laughs> he does that. And you're right. If I booted somebody and gave him a room, he wouldn't show up, and then I would have screwed somebody out of that room. So you're exactly right. And he's all offended, like why, you know, he can't stay there. And I said, your track record, number one. And number two, I promised it to other people. I'm not booting people. Mm-hmm. Well, I do appreciate it, Mike. You're traveling this weekend for the Notre Dame-BYU game in Vegas. So before we get started, we have Stefania Bell on later to talk about concussion protocol, NFL injuries, et cetera. She's, she's brilliant. She knows uh, She's a licensed physical therapist. She knows all about injuries. But before that, we're going to talk a little bit about college football this weekend. Mike, you're traveling to Vegas for the Shamrock Series game. Notre Dame is unranked, obviously. They're 2-2. Two and two. BYU is ranked number 16. They have one loss to... Oregon. Uh, so it should be a tough matchup for Notre Dame. How are you feeling about this game? How do you feel coming off of the Notre Dame bye week? You know, it's been interesting, Jess, and I think how we're going to live with Notre Dame this year is, is this week to week, is the running game going to work? You know, how much more is Drew Pine going to be comfortable passing the ball? You know, you have Michael Mayer, but and we've had Styles and, and, you know, step up at wide receiver. But will we get more, more downfield threats? So there's still a number of question marks that you hope the team keeps evolving to to get better. Uh, this could be a tough game. I mean, this without question. People are always saying, boy, I hope they improve enough by the time they get to Clemson and USC. Well, BYU is a pretty good team right now. So this is going to be a heck of a test for them. So listen, as far as the bye week, you can make the bye week work for you anytime you want. You could have a bye week in week two, and we, I could give you a reason why it's great. And you can have a bye <laughs> week in week 11, and I'll tell you why it's great. I'll never tell you why it's bad. I'll only tell you why it's good. So, you know, you, because there's nothing you can do about it. You have, the bye, you have the bye week when you have it, so there's no sense in bitching about it because nothing you can do about it. you got to deal with it in a positive way. So I'm looking forward to this. My wife's looking forward to playing a bunch of slots. Oh, I look forward to, nice. Uh, oh. What's, what's, what's your guys' favorite Vegas so, casino game? So I'm, I'm blackjack. I'm a blackjack okay. guy. I wish I did craps more, but I don't understand it. I need to Same. go there like, 
Yeah, I need to go there in like the afternoon when it's not crowded yes. and kind of have the people who work there explain it a little bit because they say that's the best odds and it looks I, like... I, it looks so fun, right? Doesn't it? When you get a big table of people, it looks like it's kind of a community thing, right? <laughs> Mike, I saw a TikTok not that long ago of some random guy explaining the rules to craps and I was like, here it is. This is it. I'm going to watch this video and now I'm going to understand it. And like probably five minutes later, I forgot everything he said, but it looks... It looks like it's complicated, but as he described it, I was like, oh, I get this. Obviously, I forgot all of it, but I feel like if you gave yourself an afternoon, you could master craps. I, I agree, and it's something you have to do, and something doing it means you have to bet money, so it would be just bet low yeah. while you're learning it. But yes, and but I still haven't done that, so my favorite game is blackjack, and Chris is slots. I mean, she goes and she looks at the slot machines that have various payouts, and if the one payout's like the low payout is at a high amount, she knows that's probably going to hit soon. I mean, she has this whole thought process wow. about the slots and what she goes and plays and why she plays. And so we are, we're we looking forward to that. Obviously, the game, and I, I have not seen a game. I was at that stadium when we did the jersey reveal when me and Mike uh -huh. went out to Vegas with Isaiah Foskey and Michael Mayer and Marcus Freeman. But I haven't been in there in a game, and I heard it's fantastic. So... I'm looking forward to that and looking forward to seeing what Notre Dame this could this could start to get them up back in to possibly get near the end of the rankings again. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but we'll see. We'll, we'll see. It's uh, it was a tough call already. And now you're dealing with a backup quarterback. But uh, we'll see. College football again, you know, had an interesting week. We saw Alabama and Georgia both win. We saw Alabama lose their starting quarterback in Bryce Young, who's day-to-day. -day. We saw Georgia just get by Missouri and lose the number one slot to Alabama. It really doesn't matter because they're going to play one another, probably in the SEC title game and then maybe again in the playoffs. But one of the interesting things to me, Jess, is we're, what, four or five weeks into the college season, and we've had another coach fired. We've had yeah. five Power Five coaches Fired Scott Frost from Nebraska, Herm Edwards from Arizona State, Jeff Collins from Georgia Tech, uh, Carl Durrell from Colorado, now Paul Chris from Wisconsin. So these are big-time jobs where, you know, we're not even halfway into the season and these coaches are gone. Uh, so, I mean, these schools, now that the coaches are gone, can start searches for the next uh, coaching vacancy. But one name, I was on another podcast that was brought up, you know he's going to get a job again. You know he's going to get offered. He was already rumored about it with Nebraska. It's going to be Urban Meyer. Oh and, and people are going to say, oh, my God, how can he coach again after what happened last year? Well, what happened last year is in the NFL. He's won a ton in college. He will get offered another college job. It's just a matter of if he wants to take it again. Yeah, that's probably true. I I also think that all of the disastrous things that happened in Jacksonville have, have really, I think, kind of distracted people from the end of his Ohio State tenure, which which ended in him getting suspended for yeah. playing a role in um, having, you know, a position coach who was accused of domestic violence and, and that entire situation. And so, yeah, you're right. Uh, in, in football and in sports, winning does trump a lot of those uh, quote unquote character concerns. And he is already back on TV doing the the whole Fox big noon kickoff thing. But uh, going back to, to the coaching vacancies for a second, I was pretty surprised about Paul Chris getting fired midway through the season, just because he was a Wisconsin guy. And, and it's, I mean, obviously becoming less rare to fire yeah. coaches early in the season, considering what we've seen this season, but it still surprised me. And so I've heard some speculation that maybe this is Wisconsin having now an opportunity to try out their defensive coordinator, Jim Leonard, as an interim head coach for the rest of the season to decide if he's someone that they want to hire, uh, you know, as a head coach. Um, and I've also, you know, heard speculation that this could be Wisconsin now realizing, well, we probably would have, you know, either let go of Paul Christ or he may have retired at the end of the season. But now that the Nebraska head coaching job is open, they're going to be competing with us for a head coach in the Big Ten and kind of not in the same region per se, but you right. know, similar, similar type jobs, I would say, for Nebraska and Wisconsin. So maybe this gives them a leg up on if they want to hire someone like Lance Leopold from Kansas, who we'll talk about in a yeah. second, who's now going to, no matter what happens the rest of the season, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe if Kansas totally tanks the rest of the season this won't happen but it seems pretty likely it's a good year to be Lance Leopold because he's either going to get a huge raise 
or a huge, uh, you know, huge power five job. Like he's the hot coaching candidate because he's now led ca- Kansas to a five and zero start in their ranked 19th in the AP poll and their first college game day hosting appearance in school history. College game day is going to the TCU Kansas game this weekend in Lawrence. So Mike, uh, maybe all of those things are connected. Maybe they're not. I was just surprised to see them get rid of Paul Christ after week five, but you know, now there's five open power five jobs, like you said. So this is big time college football. This is our boosters will pay $12 million yep. to get rid of you early. If it means we'll get a leg up on getting the next big, exciting guy. Um, but it was, it was still surprising for me to see that. Yeah. I think Paul Chris got an $11 million buyout. Um, it, 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 but you're right. I just think just like the NFL, you don't get, there's no kind of padded time. It's like, you better start producing, especially at a power five right away, or there's going to be trouble. And you mentioned Jim Leonard, Jim Leonard was offered some NFL DC jobs that he turned down. I think he's looking for that next step, like a head coach in college, and maybe it'll be there at Wisconsin. We'll have to wait and see. But you're right about the story of Kansas. Kansas is 19. Kansas State is 20. They're both ranked. Now, Kansas State has been good for a while. We understand that. But for Kansas, that place is going to be crazy with game day there. I, I mean, it will be nuts. And you think about what have been considered basketball schools, you have two of them. Syracuse is ranked 22nd. They're undefeated. And Kansas is undefeated at 19. Two known basketball schools now trying to be football schools as well. So I love seeing that kind of thing. And by the way, Syracuse, another game team that yeah. Notre Dame has on their <laughs> schedule. Sure, Ugh. catch everybody in their up year. Right. Um, but I, I think the Kansas story is a great one, and I really hope it continues. Yeah, and and also Kansas played Duke last weekend, another basketball school. So maybe Duke would have been ranked uh, their head coach first season, Mike Elko, who was the defensive coordinator at Notre right. Dame before he got hired by Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. Now he's at Duke, and I th- I believe they're four and one. Um, but yeah, like you said, the Lawrence is going to be crazy for this Kansas game, and I I understand it. Right, it's the first time their football team's been really relevant, yeah. maybe ever. Um, in a long time, at least not as my, as long as my memory goes back as a college football fan, but Mike, like we're all acting like this is some long suffering fan base. It's Kansas. They're always good at basketball. I, I mean, come on. I, I get what you're saying, but, but you know, just football is, is the sport, right? I mean, listen, they're not a blue when blood. you're in Kansas. Well, well, maybe that if it starts to turn to that, do you think? All right, let me put it. Let me ask you this: If they become a national power in football, will they be more stoked than the fact that they're a national power in basketball? I say yes. Mike, I just pulled up like their their wiki page because they they won the men's national championship. What was it like six months ago? And yeah. I was just looking to see how many times that they've made it into the final four. And like this entire wiki page is just dates. It's just like an entire page of all of the dates and all the years that they've made it into the final four. How many titles did they have, Jess? I mean, does it have there? How many titles they have? Uh, They have four. So So let me ask you this. They have four titles. Yes. Would, do you think Kansas fans would trade in half those titles for one football? Forget it. Half. They would easily. Would they trade in every one of the basketball national titles for having gotten one football national championship where they beat Alabama I, or Georgia maybe, in the national title game? May, maybe. I don't know. I don't, I'm not too plugged into the Kansas Jayhawk football fan base, but Mike, this is like James Naismith's backyard, right? Like this is just a <laughs> yeah, basketball place. Yes. Yes. I'm just, look, I'm not saying that you're wrong. And I'm not even saying that Kansas fans shouldn't be excited about this. I'm just saying like we, the media are being very condescending to Kansas when they are in fact used to winning things. We're being condescending to Kansas football because they stunk. <laughs> they st- they stunk. And I don't say stink because they're undefeated now. That's who we're being condescending to. Because you're right, the basketball, the basketball program is obviously elite. But I still say Kansas, and you guys can, can let us know, Kansas alum, Kansas fans, and, and Kansas students would trade in all four basketball titles no way. For, one, for one national football championship and i mean a national championship like now not like back in the 70s or something like now i think they would i could be wrong again i may i i i've done games there i i go there but 
I don't know the alumni and the fans, <laughs> you know, well, so, so I don't know if they trade them all in. Mike, they do have nine conference titles, okay? The last one was in 1968, and the first one was in 1892. So <laughs> I think that predates both of our lives. I don't think yeah. you actually you were probably born what in like 61, 62. I was born in 62. Thank so you, you would have been like that. it predates the moon landing. We'll put it that way. Yeah, there you go. It's been a while. Yeah, it is. It is something so good for them. Good for game day going there. I hope they have uh, an absolute blast. That to me is one of the great stories going on uh, in college football right now. Um, as far as. The NFL, we'll, we'll talk about it after we talk to, to her but of what's going on. But right now in the NFL, the concussion situation has really come to the forefront with the Tua Tungavailoa situation and others. So we thought we'd bring in someone I used to have on with Mike and Mike all the time, and me and Trey and my son Mike when we finished the last few years at ESPN. Uh, we had her on all the time. So uh, let, let's, let's talk now with Stefania Bell. All right, Stefania, so, so much going on with uh, Tua Tungavailoa and what went on. I'm sure everybody knows the situation with that. And, and I want to go a little more general because I come from an era where, really, if you put up two fingers and you said three and you were close, you went back in the game. And we know it's different now, and we also know it's going to change again. Uh, I, th- I think the league and the union have already said some of the wording is going to change. If And I know you've talked about this a lot. If you were given the right to change what it needs to be or what direction you think it needs to go in, what would you say on how teams, union, independent neurologists, and all that should be dealing with concussions on game day? Mike, it's such a long answer because it's complicated, right? And and you've probably heard me say this over the last few days, but the one thing about concussion that makes this more problematic than any other injury we encounter is that there is no definitive diagnostic test for it. And that means that in order to arrive at the diagnosis of concussion, absent two things, there are two things, loss of consciousness and a fencing response or posture, which is what people saw with Tua in that Thursday night game that was very startling because it's very dramatic when it happens. Those are two observable signs that automatically there's a diagnosis of concussion. But absent those, it's really a constellation of findings, right? There are some objective testing, neurologic testing you could put players through. There's a lot of question and answer. There's memory testing. And based on the results of this of this battery of tests and the interview with the player, you arrive at a diagnosis of concussion or not. Without a definitive diagnostic test, that means you're relying a lot on professional judgment. And while people may be extremely well qualified, we all know there's potential for error, uh, human error when it comes to relying on judgment. So to answer your question, I think the big picture fix ideally is get more objective testing. And science is working towards that. There's um, things being studied like biomarkers where you look at certain proteins in the blood or saliva to determine if there's uh, been a concussion, for example. Uh, There are eye tracking devices because we talk about in medicine, the eyes being a window to the brain. Eye function is often an indicator of brain function. And so there are things that are out there that are in process but nothing that's been widely adopted or universally accepted. And that's partially because science takes time. You know, the media and awareness is ahead of the science. So that's not a quick resolution. And in the situation we're talking about here, everybody's looking for quick changes. So what can we do to help in an area where we know it's going to be imperfect anyway? And that always means more clarity. I think we need the results of the investigation to see where the mistakes were made to best respond to that. Because if we don't know where the errors exactly happened along the way, it's hard to say exactly what to fix. But I will say this, we've already heard that the term gross motor instability is a subject of discussion. So what does that mean? Uh, Fine motor is usually like little coordination things. Like, uh, you know, if you're a piano player, fine motor coordination, all the little movements of the fingers, but gross motor is walking standing, you know, things like that, things that are really easily visible to uh, the average layman. And if you have gross motor instability, you're unstable while doing those things. 
The problem is you can have an orthopedic cause for gross motor instability. So if you tore your ACL and you try to run on it, you might be unstable and fall down. Um, if you have a head injury, that can trigger gross motor instability because of a neurological cause. And that's why it's framed in the concussion protocol as gross motor instability with the little footnote that neurologically induced. I think what we are likely to see happen since we're hearing about changes coming is that if this gross motor instability is visible, we're just going to pull the player off the field and not uh, try to establish that diagnosis because the other problematic thing about concussions is sometimes the real signs and symptoms don't declare themselves until hours or days later. So it's a, it's, it's in asking, like trying to fix it. I always go back to let's take it as much out of the judgment realm as possible, but understand that's a long-term solution. It's a big picture fix. I think the smaller things now are going to be clarification of wording, um, uh, probably erring on the side of caution or conservatism. And that's going to depend on what the review finds and the reaction to that. So when we see a player enter the concussion protocol and then not pass it and not be able to come back into the game, what exactly does that mean? And is that something that you can use as a diagnostic tool? Well, that's kind of what they are using now. And so just to walk you through what the process looks like, and I also, um, it's a little confusing because there's a game day protocol which is all, if, if, if there's an evaluation that's triggered by seeing somebody who appears injured, they then go into that game day protocol for screening and determination of whether they can return to play. If they are deemed to have a concussion, they enter the concussion protocol that they then have to work through in order to get back to play. That's the post game over the following week or weeks, et cetera. So we're talking strictly about the game day protocol here as far as your question. And essentially what happens is if somebody exhibits signs or reports symptoms of a concussion, that protocol gets triggered. And uh, it can be triggered by anyone, by the player, by people who are on the sidelines, the spotters up in the booth, uh, the UNC's unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant who can be on the ground or up in the sky. Uh, the referee can trigger it. Uh, there are, anybody who witnesses something that they deem should be evaluated can trigger it. And then uh, that player is escorted by the medical personnel to the typically the medical blue tent where there's a screening process that happens. A series of questions, a basic, a more limited neurological exam. Uh, and in that time frame in the blue tent, if it's suspicious that they might have a head injury going on, they then go to the locker room for a more detailed exam. Now, when we saw Tua go straight away to the locker room, uh, that was because there were signs exhibited, the stumbling included, that meant they were going to go straight to the locker room for the complete neurological exam. And that is basically more detailed questioning, um, some balance testing, mobility testing, uh, a more detailed neurological exam, an opportunity to look at orthopedic injuries. And then based on those findings, if they do not find things that are suggestive of a concussion, they can clear the player to return to play. If they do find things suggestive of a concussion, then the player's out for the remainder of the game. And I will add one more thing. If they do return the player to play, if they've been evaluated for a head injury, it doesn't end there. They are to observe the player. If he goes back in for a series, comes off, they're to repeat some of the questioning, make sure they're doing okay. They're then evaluated at the end of the game. They're then evaluated the next day. And so uh, technically it should not end even if a player is returned to play. Stefania, we've heard a, a few people talk about these no-go symptoms and that that should have presented, prevented Tua from getting back out on the field after he was stumbling, like you said what what are those? Is that the fencing, the loss of consciousness? Is that kind of in that bucket? Right. So I'll tell you what the, the no-go uh, signs are. It's the loss of consciousness, um, the fencing posture, uh, confusion, amnesia. Like, for example, amnesia, forgetting things. They'll often ask a player, what was the play that just happened? Um, if they, Confusion, if they appear disoriented to time or place. And that's right there on the field when the medical personnel approach them. They're asking questions to get at that. And then the final one is gross motor instability with that asterisk of if it's deemed to be neurologically induced. So those are the no-go. And the reason the asterisk is by the gross motor instability is there's no way to determine if it's neurologically induced until you go through 
the subsequent review. Yeah, and, and as you said, and as I think we all know is going to happen, that asterisk is going to be gone. And if you stumble at all, you're going to be out, whether it's a different injury or not. A couple of other procedural things about this. Um, and again, we weren't in the room when this went on, again, Sunday against the, the, the Bills in, in that one. But the, the union has already stepped in and fired the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant for some of the procedural things. From what I understand, you could explain the process better. To let the player get back on the field, don't both the UNC and the team doctor have to uni- unanimously agree, which means Tua went back on the field, which means the team doctor had to agree with that as well. So, And I know we have to wait for this investigation, but I'm wondering if something is going to have to come down with that person as well. It's, an, it's a fair question. I don't think you know like like you said we won't know until right. they've gone back and reviewed all the all the steps but you are correct that the people who go into the locker room for the full exam and by the way uh if there's any evaluation of a head injury the unc uh like if it was a preliminary screen in the blue tent the unc would be there as well as a member of the dolphins medical staff now it's typically an athletic trainer or team physician um i don't know who was the member of the dolphins staff who went into the locker room um, with the UNC, but uh, presumably one of the team physicians. And I think it's important to first explain for people who might not be aware, there are multiple team physicians for a team um, and they have different areas of specialty. So there might be a head team physician who's an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, there might be a, a head team physician who's a, a medical, you know, primary care team physician who often has responsibilities in this area of head injuries as well. And uh, sometimes those roles are shared as head team physicians. So we don't know who went as a member of the Dolphins medical staff, but there would be a representative of the Dolphins, representative uh, being the UNC who's unaffiliated. And as uh Dr. Sills, the chief medical officer, explained when I spoke with him last week, I was asking him to describe for people exactly what the role of the UNC is, because the question you're asking is the one a lot of people are asking. And he said, you know, they felt it was important and reminder that these uh, protocols are jointly agreed upon by the NFL and the NFLPA. So um, and when they crafted these protocols to have somebody who's familiar with the player, Uh, because that person is better able to potentially judge subtle changes in behavior, personality. We see that with brain injury sometimes where somebody might just be off, uh, not acting like themselves. And the unaffiliated person might not pick that up because they're not accustomed to the player. So the idea was to have somebody who's familiar, somebody who's unfamiliar, who would come in with no knowledge of the player, no investment, and might be better prepared to be extremely objective, shall we say. And also the UNC has the board certification board training in neurology or neurosurgery. And so they uh, uh, jointly evaluate the player and then yes, they confer. It's supposed to be, you know, a collegial conversation. But what I am told is that if there is any discrepancy or disagreement between the two, the judgment always lies with the more conservative approach. And so if somebody were to say, well, I'm not comfortable because of X, Y, or Z, that would be the overriding conclusion. So everybody seems to want, you know, when this happened, this cut and dry yes or no, which we know because there isn't even a cut and dry for a concussion (laughs) diagnosis, we're going to get a yes or no. So I had this situation. I was calling the Tampa Bay-Kansas City game. And the one thing we always talk about is player involvement. And I know as a player, and I know the high majority of players will try and hide whatever they can to get back on the field. Now, you, so you could say the player, listen, it's their own fault at times. And listen, it is. You know, I, you, you do what you have to at times to get back on the field, which sometimes isn't the smartest decision. So in that game, Cameron Brait, the tight end for the Buccaneers, caught a pass, and I was watching this real time, and he ran into his own guy. And it was coming toward the end of the half. And he got up slow. He didn't have any gross motor instability, but he jogged off the field slowly. You couldn't really tell if it was a head or what it was. He came off the field and he said it was his shoulder. Two plays, like play or two late, he went back on back on the field. He didn't even get examined. He didn't even go in the blue tent. It- 
the easy part is to say there will be some gray areas. That I am very confident in because that there, this is an imperfect uh, science at this point. Until we have the diagnostic uh, and we can know it in real time, it's going to be impossible. But, um, and I haven't seen this exact play, but I have heard the conversation around it. So I have not seen it myself on, on tape, but I've heard the conversation around it. Uh, as far as the eyes on the field, that is why they added the addition of an athletic trainer spotter in the booth. There's also one of the UNCs in the booth who specifically has access to video to review. And the idea is that they can communicate down to the sideline immediately. So if they see something that, and you know from being around football, it's so busy on the sideline. Sometimes we watch at home and we think, how could they not see that? But we're looking at the, you know these camera angles that are up and above and often the personnel on the sideline, they might be just blocked by other players or sometimes they're tending to someone else. So the idea was if we put two people upstairs, they have the ability to look down and survey the field and rate, they can immediately radio down to the referee and call for a medical timeout. So since that didn't happen, uh, I don't know if nobody saw anything that they thought was warranted or if they just didn't see anything at all. Who is to say? But if the player doesn't identify that and nobody saw it, then you're living in that gray space. What I would say, though, is at least he did ultimately report something. They screened it and then he was held up. So uh that's the idea is that it's supposed to ultimately work that way there are some i don't know fail safe is the right word but some little safety nets built in and as i said when we were we started this um even if somebody clears the concussion protocol that game day protocol they go through the test they're cleared to return the eyes are more focused on that player going forward to make sure that things don't change. You know, we still hear about um, already this year, Alec Pierce, wide receiver for the Colts, reported concussion symptoms a day after the game. He didn't go into the protocol until at least 24 hours after. Nobody saw anything. He didn't feel anything. But a day or so later, he complains of headaches and he missed the subsequent game because of being in the concussion protocol. The NFL also posts injury data that they share with us at the end of the year. Uh, they're obviously looking at numbers of concussions and, and, and monitoring head impacts. They have video uh, that they uh, use throughout um, the offseason to then review all the head impacts and make determinations about, in some cases, that's what's led to rule changes, for example, on special teams and so forth. But they try to correlate what they see on video with players who reported concussion or concussions that were uh, determined even after the fact to see where they're picking things up where they might be missing things. So it's a constant area that's being studied to see how can we best identify these when they happen and hopefully not have to wait until uh, later. But it's also true that sometimes the symptoms don't declare themselves until hours or even days later. Within 48 hours is usually about the right time, but Again, that very nebulous nature of when the symptoms appear is part of the issue. One more question on, on Tua and concussions. Um, I know it's probably pretty difficult to speculate on it while just watching TV at home, but when you did see the initial hit and then he got up and stumbled and then went into the locker room, what was your reaction? Were you thinking, I definitely just saw him get a concussion or, or maybe it's you know what they said about the back injury? So having worked in this area of medicine before and treated a number of athletes who've suffered concussion and just knowing how different everything looks, I'm pretty much a wait and see person. I will admit that when I saw it and I saw him stumble, I was like, well, he's got to be evaluated. Like my first thought is he's got to be evaluated. And when I saw him escorted off the field with the medical personnel, I was like, okay, you know, this is what's supposed to happen. And I kind of didn't think much about it. If you recall, that was not long before the half and they went straight to the locker room. So I was thinking to myself, oh, good. They're taking him straight to the locker room. That's going to be a full neurological eval. And then we'll see what happens. And uh, I probably assumed he'd be out, but I'm not taking that as a judgment. It's just more patterns that you see. Um, and then when he returned, I remember thinking, oh, okay, well, 
maybe there was something I missed. Maybe it was, or, you know, I, that's how your mind works. Maybe it was orthopedic. They must have felt that he was cleared. They must have gone through the process and, and felt that, that it wasn't actually a concussion after all, and blah, blah, blah. And then I heard the thing about the back and the ankle. I did see some still shots later of him getting just a couple plays prior twisted up uh, right at the goal line where he got bent backwards and twisted. Somebody had fallen on his ankle and he was actually hyperextended and rotated. Those things can cause back and ankle injuries. And you have to remember, he had a very serious hip injury uh, right before he was drafted and has subsequently a little bit less mobility in that hip. So that means his back is at more risk of getting hurt and that kind of, like there are a lot of things, right? So when I heard back and ankle, with that, I thought, okay, and and I just trusted the process. Now, I, I, this is where the investigation is going to lay out for us what happened and how they arrived at that conclusion. I will say that in subsequent conversations uh, with the league during the process of the investigation, they did confirm that he indeed had orthopedic um, issues back and ankles. So uh, it's they're not mutually exclusive, right? You you could have all of them, but um, the, the danger I would say, and I think this is important about relying solely on video evidence, is that most concussions don't look like that. Most concussions are invisible to us. Uh, and uh, Mike, perhaps you, you could, I mean, the guys who play on the line take repeated impacts at a sub-threshold level that may or may not do anything in real time, but every so often there's one that it, it is a concussive event, but nobody recognizes it because it's not, it's not dramatic. It's not, you, you are not able to see something on video that anyone as a layperson would go, aha, that was a concussion. And my concern is that if we go, oh, well, I know that when I see it, then you're ignoring the vast majority of them, which don't look anything like that. And we also know that the presentation of symptoms doesn't necessarily correlate with how dramatic the injury appeared to be. So I would just ask everyone to keep that in mind as they consider this going forward, because I hear it a lot where people talk about, well, you know, are we getting soft in the NFL or that guy? Nothing really happened to him. He seemed fine. What's why is he out for three weeks? Well, that guy who looked like he just got a bare tap on the helmet, he might still have difficulty riding in a car because he's still motion sensitive from that concussion. They really are a, a difficult injury to navigate and we're still in the infancy as far as the science is concerned. So I think we have to be still prepared that even if we make improvements to the rules, and there are always improvements to be made, and I'm glad that the NFL and the NFLPA are grinding through this. It's important. But is it going to be perfect after this? Nope. <laughs> yeah, Stefania, you're right. We've learned so much over the years. Like I said, in my day, it was a headache, and you went back and you played. But like I always say, you know, way back in the day, nobody wore seatbelts or helmets when they rode a, a bike. We've, we learn along the way to become smarter, and the more we learn, the better off we're going to be. Stefania Bell with us. You can catch her every day, co-host of Fantasy Focus Football Podcast. She's an ESPN senior writer and uh, uh, analyst as well as a licensed physical therapist. Also, you can see her every Sunday on ESPN, Sunday morning fantasy football now. So she's all over the place giving great information out. And the other thing that kind of, I don't know if I want to say it got lost, but there's so much concussion talk, was this thing with J.J. Watt and the AFib. I mean, people see AFib and maybe they Google it because they don't know what AFib is and they read about it and they say, how in the hell can a world-class athlete like J.J. Watt have AFib, something now he has to deal with, I believe said his heart had to be shocked to get back to normal rhythm. What how, what is this, I guess I would ask, and how could it possibly affect his career? And is this something we see in, in world-class athletes? Well, you know, Mike, I mean, I, I like to think I have a broad base of education as a physical therapist, but there are some areas where I need to call on my expert resources. And, you know, there's a whole division within cardiology of sports cardiologists, because there's, uh, 
the athlete heart is a complex thing because of training effects. Uh, athletes' hearts are different. There's differences between men and women. And now when players go through the combine, and I don't think they did this when it was when you were playing, but now there's cardiology screens um, of all kinds for every player. And we've heard about players with things that get picked up and uh, at the combine that, that, that may ultimately either change how they're managed or sometimes keep them from playing in the NFL. So I say that to acknowledge that there's a whole specialty area within sports cardiology. Um, AFib is in a regular heart rhythm. Um, it's, it's, we hear about it. I think people are familiar. Atrial fibrillation is the full term. And I think people uh, have heard the term before because cardiac issues can affect anyone. And so it, it sounds scary, right? Because first we're talking about concussions in the brain. Now we're talking about the heart. Um, but athletes, just like anyone else, can develop an abnormal rhythm. Um, usually one of the reasons athletes self-identify so quickly is they're so attuned to how their body functions that if their heart rate feels way off or something feels abnormal, they go to get it checked out. It sounds like that's what J.J. Watt did. And in, upon further evaluation, they, de they detected AFib. And then they do shock it back to normal. It's just like what you think. The electrodes, they, they, they shock them back, usually under sedation. Um, I think if you heard J.J. Watt's post-game press conference, he alluded to that by saying, you know, they put me out. They tell you, we're going to put you out and then we're going to shock you. Um, I spoke with uh, one of the premier sports cardiologists in the world who is very involved with screening athletes during uh, the combine and has helped create guidelines for various leagues on cardiac management. And he told me, yes. Um, when detected acutely, you can correct it quickly with a shock or a defibrillation, and it is totally within reason for an athlete to return to play uh, their sport within that time frame. So that's uh, coming from one of the experts. It's it's like something, it, you know, it's, it's an electrical signal in the heart, and it's like something just gets that electrical signal a little bit out of whack, and they're trying to reset it to normal. And once they do, uh, you know, it's carry on. And of course, Obviously, they're uh, they're probably doing some detective work additionally, perhaps some imaging. They're going to monitor him going forward. You don't have an event like that and just forget about it. But um, as far as safety wise, uh, my understanding is that it was uh, re totally reasonable for him to return to play. Well, Stefania, we really appreciate your expertise. It's a lot better than Mike and I just you know <laughs> pretending to be uh, armchair doctors while watching football. Um, thanks again for, for joining us, and I look forward to sending you more pictures of my dog, which we've been chatting about offline now. For yes, Rico and I want to see more pictures of Willow and you, <laughs> and um, I, on a serious note, I really want to thank you for having me on because, um, like, it's emotional. It's, uh, it's uh, some of the pictures when you see people get hurt, they're jarring. Even those of us who come from a world of sports medicine have worked on sidelines, it's still jarring and we want to get it right. And I think uh, that it's important to have context to the conversation because humans are imperfect, even the ones in medicine. It's why we call it medical practice. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not perfect. And I'm not um, speaking to this situation in particular, but I would just say in general, I do think, you know, people are trying to do their jobs and care for their athletes and patients to the best of their ability. But anytime you can take away things you can learn and evolve the process, I say we're all better for it. So I appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on and, and have this very real conversation. Yeah, certainly if, if some good can come out of what was a scary situation, um, that will be a, a silver lining, I think. So thanks again for joining us. Well, Jess, great to talk to Stefania. I mean, she has so much incredible information. And, and in this situation, she just kind of makes you hit the brakes, right? Because everybody wants a quick decision and a quick solution. When everybody saw Tua stumbling, they wanted him out of the game. And when he wasn't, they wanted everything torn down and then built back up again. And because concussions, they're so difficult to you know, diagnose, we run into these situations, especially when players try and hide stuff as well. It's, it's such an incredible evolvement, evolving of this situation, again, to when I played, of how ridiculous it was where you just played, to now. What's, and one thing she said, and she's right, is in six weeks, everybody's starting to go the other way. Oh, why'd they pull that guy off the field? 
He didn't look like he had a concussion. Just because when we look at somebody and say, oh, they have a concussion, and who knows if we're right or wrong, we want the quick evaluation. But in six, seven weeks, everybody's going to be like, oh, everybody's soft again. They're pulling them out of the game. That's where we're headed. You know it. I don't really see that happening, though, because I still think that there is such an incentive to put players back out there that the mentality I don't think will change very much. I just think that maybe in extreme situations like what we saw with Tua, people will be more you know, able to err on the side of caution, which I'm okay with. And I know that a lot of football fans disagree. There's obviously still a culture in football of like, oh, I miss the days when you could just launch yourself headfirst into the opponent and tackle them. And especially like college football fans who complain about, you know, targeting every weekend and that sort of thing. And, you know, in the NFL, it's always the roughing the passer with the new rule change with landing on the quarterback, all of these things, right, Mike? Like a lot of fans hate that. And they, they want to hearken back to the, the, the good old, old days. Um, like you were talking about, but I, I still don't necessarily think that if they do amend the protocols, it will change that much because I still think that players want to get back out there. Coaches want players to get back out there. Agreed. I just I just hope that in in the most extreme cases people feel like they're okay and they're comfortable saying like, you know, we don't really know if Tua's back caused this or what. We do know that he just took a huge hit and we saw him, you know, stumble when he got back up. We should just keep him out for the second half. That that's going to be I think the biggest immediate thing out of this is and Stefania touched on it about the gross motor skills uh, if they're off like it was with Tua, that there was that asterisk if they had something else like a back or an ankle, which Tua said he had. That's going to go away. That asterisk is going to be gone. If you see somebody stumble like that, they're going to be done. And I don't have a problem with that. Real quick, uh, before we move on to some of the play, I am one of those people that complain about targeting. I, not not so much the call to give them 15 yards, but kicking a kid out of the game. I, I agree I, with I, that. I hate, I, I hate kick, that. If you want to go maybe a second time yeah. before you do it, but I hate when they kick a guy out of the game. I get going to the head and throwing the, 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 the flag and all that. I, I understand it to a point, but the ejection is horrific. I cannot stand it. I Yeah, I agree with you. It's often, you know, a mistake when it happens. And if it, if it is a recurring thing, maybe over the course of a season, a player does it more than once or something like that. I could maybe see some sort of like ejection or suspension, but like these players aren't even being paid. So it's really kind of a bizarre thing that we're doing with that. But the intent of the rule, I think, you know, I, I hope at least it has um, done its purpose and we've seen less of those injuries. It's hard to tell because obviously college football doesn't keep stats the same way the NFL right. does, but, but I'm with you, Mike. So you were at the, the Bucks chiefs game. You called that game uh, Sunday night. So obviously a, a repeat of the last Super Bowl that the Bucks won, the chiefs won it. Um, it was kind of an exciting game, but you know, Patrick Mahomes just did some crazy Patrick Mahomes things. What were your, what was your takeaway from that? Oh, again, and, and Travis Kelsey said it after the game. He said, he's Houdini of football. I mean, the one play where he rolled out and spun away from, um, the linebacker and then like shot putted the ball or like, like, <laughs> like a jump shot. So he's imitated football. He's imitated baseball with his sidearm throws and his slides. Now basketball with a jump shot. It's, it was amazing. The thing that stood out to me was Kansas city's running game. Cause they haven't been known to be a running team. And at times Andy Reed has been criticized for abandoning the run and just living on the pass. They ran the ball just in this game 37 times, and they passed it 37 times. It was a perfect split, and they ran uh, so successful against a team in Tampa Bay that is one of the best against the run. The, the Tampa Bay had one of the best defenses in the league, only giving up nine points a game. They gave up 41 in this one. So from the Kansas City side, that's what impressed me the most was their ability to run the ball and how much that will continue to try and run the ball. They won't have that success all the time, uh, but try and run the ball going forward. For Tampa Bay, their defense, they're going to hate watching film of that one. Let me tell you, I've <laughs> sat in many where you just play like shit and you're like, my God, I don't want to see film the next day. Sometimes it's so bad, the coaches just say, we're throwing it away, let's move on. And I'm sure a lot of the players are hoping that happens so they don't have to watch uh, that film. But the offense, you know, this was one of those again where – we waited to see which wide receivers were available. And there he was. Mike Evans was back from suspension. Chris Godwin was back on the field. Um, uh, Julio Jones was back on the field. So you're like, okay, he's got his weapons. 
And they still, now they did score 31 in this one, but we know they had struggled to score points. So I'm not sure where this team is going to end up. Just that defense needs to get back to what they were to keep them in games. And I'm just not sure of the firepower on offense. They don't have a great running game. They, they run it a decent amount. Not in this game, they didn't. But before that, uh, Leonard Fournette had been averaging close to 20 carries a game. So I'm, I'm, I've heard some say that that's still the team to beat in the NFC. I don't think so. I don't agree with that. So uh, you, don't, you don't picture this being another... You know, Super Bowl, Super Bowl? Rematch, no, you know. no. If if one of these teams makes a Super Bowl, I think it'd be Kansas City and not Tampa Bay. I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, I think the best team, and I don't know if you agree, the best team to me, not only in the NFC, but possibly in the league, it's probably between three teams, Buffalo, Kansas City, and the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah. Philadelphia Eagles still undefeated, playing some incredible, incredible ball right now. So I have them. I do my top five, me and, and, and my son Mike do a top five for DraftKings every week. And I have Philly uh, number one uh, this week and Kansas City number two. But I, I want to ask you, hmm. uh, it finally happened in Pittsburgh. I thought finally. it would happen by week six or I've whenever. I've been waiting for you to ask me this, Mike. Yeah, Go ahead. I, 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 was, I, I thought for Pittsburgh it would be whenever we, did, we feel like they're out of it because I didn't think I thought they were going to be the last place team in this division. <laughs> and we saw at halftime of the game against the Jets in the second half. There goes Kenny Pickett. It is now his job. He went out there, threw three interceptions, though a couple weren't his fault. Hey, uh, he threw 10 completions, too. He, right? he did. And, and again, but I just well, people are going to say. Well, technically 13 completions, but three were pe- to the other Exactly, team. yeah. People are going to say, oh, he threw three interceptions. Uh, one was a ball down the field that Claypool had hands on but got knocked out, bounced around and caught. The other was off a of tight end's hands. So they weren't all his fault. I, he ran for a couple of touchdowns. Uh, and he brought that spark, which was Tomlin was looking for. So yeah. are you good with that change happening now and be done for the rest of the season with it? Yeah, I'm good with it. I think that the last three games the Steelers played were all very close losses. There was the, the Patriots loss, the Browns loss, and then, you know, of course, this, this Jets game with which Trubisky started. And I think that with maybe a little bit more offense, you could have won all three of those games. Like you, they were all close games. You just needed a, the offense to to you know drive the ball in the fourth quarter, basically. And this Jets game was actually sad because <laughs> for me at least, because the defense was ultimately kind of let the Steelers down a little bit at the end, just not being able to get one stop in the fourth quarter and letting the Jets take the lead. But yeah, it. Kenny Pickett uh, definitely provided the spark. I think that now that you are going into the more difficult part of the schedule, um, it is a little unfortunate. If the, if the schedule had been the other way around and you played Buffalo, Miami, and you know these tougher teams first, and now you get the Jets, the Browns, and and the Patriots, and we we don't even have to talk about the Patriots. What I don't know what they're doing. Starting yeah. Bailey Zappi now. Um, yeah. Western Kentucky legend, though. We got to give him some credit. It just is unfortunate the way the schedule kind of was laid out for the Steelers. I think that Pickett's got his uh, work cut out for him, but I did love some of the stuff I saw from him. Like he got George Pickens into the game, which is the Steelers draft pick this season that didn't get a lot of targets from Mitch Trubisky. And Mitch Trubisky, I think, was averaging, you know, 5.6 yards per attempt. Uh, and Pickett was around 9.2, I think, in this yeah. game. So he's yeah. already spreading the field out and getting the ball downfield. And, you know, if you want to watch exciting offenses, that's what you have to do. You need a quarterback yeah. that can do that. And that was the issue in Chicago with Mitch, that, that Nagy and that, and that offense, he wasn't throwing it down the field. And Mitch before, I think it was before this game, or the last one talked about how he wants to throw it more down the field. Well, Mitch is now going to be one of these high-paid backups going that will go around the league. That's going to be his future because he was a first-rounder. He's always going to get that shot somewhere. And again, for those that don't know, I asked Jess about Pittsburgh because she is a monster Steelers fan. So, and the next two games, I mean, are tough because it's Buffalo and Tampa, two teams that have really great defenses, even though Tampa didn't show too much against Kansas City. But the good thing is, is is Pickett now, it's his job. So when the game plan is being made early in the week, they'll be sitting down with him, what he likes to do, what he doesn't like to do. It'll be all based around him, which is a good thing. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how they call plays being his first start where he has the entire week to kind of prepare for it. Do you still agree with me, though, that they will be the worst team in the division? No. Oh, uh, who who who's worse than them? I mean, do you think the Browns are are that much better? Yes. 
Yes, I, I do. I think they, they lost are. to the. They also lost to the Jets and the. They Falcons. did. How about those Jets? Huh? Yeah. No, I think overall they have a better team, and then they're going to get Deshaun Watson back again for the last six games of the season. Well, maybe by then Kenny Pickett will be playing like Deshaun Watson. Oh, there you go. We will see. We will see. All Look, right. the AFC North is a dumpster fire. I stand by my take. Give me like five more weeks of of information. Maybe I'll finally come around to agreeing with you. No, I, I agree with that. Cause and give see, me TJ Watt back. Boy, you need that. That is the truth. You know, that's something out of sight, out of mind at times. But I'm sure Steeler fans, it isn't uh, out of mind for them. They they completely understand that yeah. the best pass rusher in the, in the game uh, is not out there. So, all right, we'll see how Kenny does next week. Um, uh, I, I want to finish up with, uh, we always do it with, with F1. And where were they out in uh, Singapore? Yeah. Uh, and boy, what a what a rainstorm before that thing! I wasn't sure how that was going to go. Puddles of water on the course that they tried to dry up uh, after this one, but yeah, stunningly enough to see an F one race and Max Verstappen this year a not win it, b not being in the podium, yeah. c not even being in the top five. Yeah, well, he could have clinched the championship if yep. he had won by a certain amount of points uh, against Charles Leclerc and, and Sergio Perez. But he uh, his team kind of let him down a little bit during qualifying. He, he had to come in on his flying lap because he didn't have enough fuel. Um, so that was a bummer. So this this was one of those tracks where if you don't qualify well, it's hard to make up paces, uh, you know, spots during the race. So he did not, I think he finished in what, eighth place? Or he finished in seventh. Seventh place. And, and uh, his teammate, Sergio Perez, won the race. Ferrari ended up back on the podium, both drivers, for the first time since they were down here in Miami uh, in May, which is uh, honestly a little bit of an insane statistic considering they are considered the second best team this year um, and have, you know, the second best car probably. Um, but yeah, both McLarens finished, uh, fourth and fifth, which was yep. a good finish for them. And overall, like not one of those races where a lot of people are overtaking, but because of the rain, like you said, it's a little bit more of a strategic race in terms of when do you put on, you know, your, your slicks and that sort of thing. But there were a lot of drivers just sliding into walls. This yeah. Weekend, Mike. Yeah. Turn seven seemed to be the, the tough one. I know for Verstappen and for Lewis Hamilton, and you're right about some names, we normally don't see at the top four, five, and six is Lando Norris, Daniel Ricciardo, and Lance Stroll. I mean, those yeah. th- those aren't names we normally see up there. And I'm not a big fan. You correct me if I'm wrong, because I, as I said, I'm, I'm more new into this. Kind of like Monaco, where it's not a great passing course. Mm-hmm. So kind of where you are, you can get stuck there and then throw in bad weather. And it's tough to have any kind of really cars challenging one another, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that, you know, there are some fans that are not so pleased that Formula One didn't start the race a little sooner so that maybe the weather could have been more at play considering that. But at the same time, they're obviously trying to be safe and make sure that the drivers aren't going out there and putting themselves at more risk. So, yeah, Mike, there's there's a lot of fans who aren't a fan of Monaco – um, for that reason, and Monaco will be back on the schedule next season despite that because it is one of those, like, you know, it's it's like the Rose Bowl. It, I get Everyone it. I mean, always it's, it's tied Monaco. in the Rose Bowl. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. so it's, it's staying on the calendar. But, yeah, Mike, um, the next race will be in Japan at 1 a.m. Eastern on Sunday morning. So pr- I probably won't be staying up for that. But after that, coming back to the U.S. for uh, the Austin uh, – for the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin. So – Coming, coming back to North America to finish, uh, and the season's sadly only five races to go. And it seems, I think Verstappen can clinch it here, right? He needs a yes. lead of 112 points, and I think he's at 103 uh, after the next race uh, to clinch the championship. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that. I love keeping an eye on that. I really have been getting into that a lot lately. And uh, uh, to finish up again, so let's remind everybody uh, that on October 14th. Uh, we will be a couple of Notre Dame grads. We'll be doing a show live right here at Notre Dame where I am right now at O'Rourke's, um, which is right across the street from campus. It's very walkable everywhere. The pep rally, I believe, is going to be at 6 o'clock, and we're going to be 730 Eastern live at O'Rourke. So it is going to be thumping there. And by the way, I just found out for that game, because I'm going to try and get some of the guys if they're there early, 
My brother Bob let me know. My brother Bob was part of the 1977 national championship team at Notre Dame. Their reunion is that weekend. So a lot of the guys are going to be coming in for that game. So if some of them come in a day early, I'm going to try and get some of them to come over there um and uh and visit uh so that was uh i remember that year what a what a great year the second last time they won a title they won in 88 and then they won that in 77 when they beat texas in the cotton bowl so i remember it like it was yesterday oh shut up jess shut up mike before we go oh i'm i'm should say I'm very excited for our live show presented yep. by Guinness. Can't wait to to do that with you and be at or works the night before a game. Um, back to Kansas and TCU for a second. TCU is minus seven on DraftKings Sportsbook. Before we go, who are you picking for that game? Wow, I, I there's part of me, my heart because of of where they've been football wise. I want Kansas to win that game, but I, I have a feeling TCU will win and probably cover as well. As Ooh. much as that hurts me to say, much as it hurts me to say, I'll be rooting for Kansas. I'm not calling college this year, so I can go ahead and have my rooting interest. I'm rooting for Kansas, but I think TCU is going to gonna take care of their business. Uh, after seeing them blow out Oklahoma last yeah. weekend, I kind of have to agree with you. But Jalen Daniels, who knows? Maybe I'll, I'll take Kansas to cover, but TCU wins the game. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.